to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 12. We are studying through the Gospel of Luke. We're doing it thematically. We're taking a section at a time as, as it presents a theme to us. And we're in chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to look down through verse 34 this morning. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 34. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray together. Lord, together we do join in prayer, lifting our hearts and our affection up to heaven. Asking, Lord, that you would guide and direct us into your spiritual truth this morning. Lord, we don't want to hear anything that is not the truth. We don't want to fix our hearts on anything that is not spiritual and for that lord we need the ministry of your holy spirit taking the words that are spoken and bringing them to focus on jesus christ we enjoy your word more than that we love it lord it's a lamp and a light and a, and a delight to us and we want to dig into it lord and have it just fill our hearts with wonder and awe we pray these things this morning in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Those who are wealthy 
always seem to want more. Those who are wanting always seem to want more. Both the wealthy and the wanting suffer from the same spiritual disease, covetousness. We could define covetousness using a dictionary, but that wouldn't really help us understand what it is or how it affects us. We need it described for us. It is described for us by Jesus in the verses we've read. He put his finger on it in verse 15. Then he described it in the remaining verses. He first described covetousness among the wealthy, addressing the brothers who were disputing their inheritance. He didn't stop there, however. Turning to his disciples, who had given up everything to follow him, Jesus described covetousness among those who are wanting. Covetousness, we'll see, has nothing to do with the largeness or the lack of your possessions. It's entirely a spiritual matter. It's a disease of the heart. It affects us all. We need to guard against it if we are ever going to experience real spiritual contentment on the earth. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, if you have any wealth, beware you are not possessed by possessions. And number two, if you have any want, beware you are not preoccupied with possessions. First of all, in verses 13 through 21, if you have any wealth, beware you are not possessed by possessions. Wealthy is a term that few of us would apply to ourselves. We know wealthy people, and that's how we're sure we're not among them. It would be wrong, however, to ignore Jesus' warning to the wealthy. You and I may not be rich, but we are among the wealthiest people in the world. Even the poorest among us is among the wealthiest in the world. If you've traveled at all outside the United States, especially on a short-term mission, you know that what I'm saying is true. You may not be wealthy by certain standards, so let's put it this way. Do you have any wealth? The answer is yes, and because it is, you should beware you are not possessed by the desire for more possessions. Verse 13, then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It was common for folks to ask their spiritual leaders to help settle their disputes. And you know what? It's not really a bad idea. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul encourages believers to settle disputes among themselves rather than to sue one another in open court. If your brother, he says, is dragging you to court, settle with him before you get there so that the testimony of Jesus Christ isn't despised in the secular world. People look and they think, well, why would I want to become a Christian? Christians can't even solve their own problems. And so if you're having a dispute, you might want to take it to spiritual men, maybe the leaders of the church or others that you would respect, not others that will decide for you, but others that will truly look at it and arbitrate the dispute and then live with their decision. Now, Jesus' answer sounded as if he wanted no part in settling disputes. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now, it wasn't that Jesus thought settling disputes was a bad idea. But you need to notice, this man didn't really ask Jesus to settle the dispute. 
He demanded that Jesus tell his brother to divide the inheritance. And that's a very different thing. He didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, my brother and I have a dispute. Can you help us? Can you determine who should get the bigger part of the inheritance or how it should be divided? He just said, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so Jesus was responding to that. He was responding to the real attitude in the heart. And the word for brother here is plural. He was talking to both of these brothers because both of them were in error. The attitude was covetousness. And Jesus exposed it in verse 15. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You know, why didn't people just quit asking Jesus questions? I mean, you ask Jesus a question, hey, or, or, you know, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus just busts him out and says, well, you'd have to beware of covetousness. Just quit talking to Jesus. I mean, he was always doing this to the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, what a blessing that he could go to the real heart of the matter. Now, this statement about covetousness, it's the basic principle that you need to know. It's applicable whether you feel like you have wealth or whether you feel want. Jesus gave the principle and then he illustrated it among the brothers who had wealth and then among the disciples who had want. There are a couple of things we can say right away about covetousness and possessions from what Jesus says here. First of all, abundant possessions do not and cannot bring you spiritual contentment. Comfort, yes, but comfort does not bring spiritual contentment. There is a lie out in the world before you become a Christian. The more you have, the more comfortable you are, the more content you will be. But you've heard many, many testimonies over the years from some of the wealthiest people on the planet about getting to the end of their lives and realizing that they would give up all of their wealth for a moment's peace for a, a real joy in their spirit. They still recognize the emptiness and the lack and that hole in their heart. God has placed eternity in our hearts and no amount of physical comfort can overcome that. And so uh, p- abundant possessions cannot ever bring you spiritual contentment. Comfort, yes, but comfort will not uh, soothe you later on in life. Secondly, Abundant possessions are not an indication of God blessing your life. Wealth on earth is not a measure of spirituality. Now, I emphasize that only because we have a tendency to think that it is. If we see somebody with a great amount of wealth or a a church that is blessed with a large amount of wealth or whatever it would be, we believe that that is correlated to some spirituality. Uh, But that's just not true. Some of the wealthiest people on the planet are not Christians at all. They have no heart for God. Some of the largest religious groups, uh, you notice I don't say churches necessarily, with the greatest land holdings and, and wealth are not being blessed by God. They're cults and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So we want to get this out of our thinking. Wealth has nothing to do with whether you are spiritual or not. How can you tell if you are covetous and have become possessed by possessions? Well, Jesus told a story to tell you how to identify covetousness. And it begins in verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, 
The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? You need to see at the beginning here that this farmer was not a wicked man. He was not an evil person. He didn't get wealthy by stealing or cheating or lying. He was a salt of the earth, hard-working, good old boy, working and living off the land. And, and we would applaud him and look up to him. However, two things marked the farmer as covetous. He was selfish rather than share, and he invested in riches rather than rewards. First of all, we see his selfishness emphasized by the use of personal pronouns. Did you notice the repetition of the words I and my? I occurs eight times in this parable. My is repeated four times. He was being blessed with plenty, but he kept it all for himself rather than share any of it with others. There was no thought at all that he could give this plenty or this excess or that he could use it for the glory of God. He, had, he was already wealthy when the story began, and when he got more, he just pulled down his perfectly good barns to build bigger barns so that he could store more and more and more for himself. Now, it's okay to save, and it's okay to plan for your future. It is not okay to be selfish in doing so with no thought of sharing. And this is where you need the Holy Spirit to speak to you personally. Do you have plenty? I really don't know. But God does. Now, we all have opinions about who has plenty and who has want. And if you'd like, I'll come over and I'll give you my opinion. <laughs> I, I'm happy to, I try not to, but I, I'm happy to do it if you want to ask. Uh, and so, I, I can't tell you really how many square feet of living space you need or how many vehicles you need or how much clothing and accessories you need or in my case, how many books you should have or coffee makers you should accrue. <laughs> I, I, actually, I can, I'm impoverished when it comes to that. No, but I can't tell you. Uh, and so, you know, there's not a there's not a square foot determiner in, in the Christian community where, you know, if we go above a certain square footage, uh, you're blowing it and you need to donate the rest of the church. Uh, I, I can't tell you that if you want my and I, I joke about my opinion. I mean, if you do want an honest appraisal, you could ask some people who are honest, not not your friends. No, I mean, seriously, I mean, you know, sometimes you ask people, you know, hey, do you think this is too much, you know, this, this that I bought or whatever. And a lot of times your friends, you know, they're, because they're your friends and they cherish your friendship, they're hesitant to say, yeah, that's, that's a real excessive, you know, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing with that? I mean, you're going to blow everybody's mind with that. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're just hesitant to do that. We just kind of, oh, well, you know, whatever, I praise the Lord, <laughs> you know. I mean, so, I mean, it is clear, you have to be honest, I mean, there are some people who just, they, they have an excess, but 
God doesn't say there can't be wealthy Christians, that every Christian has to be in want. And so this is a personal thing. You have to get alone with God and ask God, Lord, is this from my own covetousness? Am I possessed with possessions or is this something that you have for me? And and one of the ways that you can gauge this, is this a selfishness or is it a real sharing? You know, a lot of times I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, I'm going to get that so I can use it for God. Really? And I, I can't even bring up anything because I'll bust people, you know, and stuff. But, you know, I mean, are you really, really, really going to use it for God? And it's not using it for God to just put a bumper sticker on it. I mean, that's, that's not really it. You know, and that, that's really, Lord, you know, if you give me this, you know, 85-foot cabin cruiser, I'll do it for your glory. I'll fly the Christian flag on it while I'm cruising. Hey, you might, you know, if God wants you to have a cabin cruiser, praise the Lord. There's, I don't care about that. But you can't go into it thinking that it's going to glorify God just because it says Jesus lives on the galley, you know, or something like that. And so this is between you and the Lord. And I, I would say that most of us already have plenty of possessions and we do need to be careful about selfishness and start sharing. Our whole society is geared towards having more, getting more, being better off. It's very difficult. It's actually difficult in our society to maintain a certain standard of living. The forces that be are against you. Uh, you know, the, the devil system in the world, it's actually against you, always seeking to draw you into this idea that you need more and more and more. And so just be careful. Now, then the farmer invested in riches rather than in rewards. Sure enough, the farmer died. As always is the case, his earthly riches were left behind, probably for two brothers to argue over the inheritance. In eternity, he had nothing stored up for the reward and contentment of his soul. I love this. He's talking to his soul. Soul, which is, I guess, how you would address your soul. Maybe Mr. Soul, you know, if you wanted to be formal. But so he tells his soul, take your easy drink and be merry. Hey, think about it for a minute. Your soul isn't interested in earthly comforts. I'm not all, you know, privy to exactly, you know, what your soul is made of and all that. But I don't think it eats and drinks too much uh, or that it needs the physical. Your soul is eternal and longs for spiritual contentment. Rather than accumulate riches on earth, you should be storing up rewards in eternity. And by the way, this is the only mention of retirement anywhere in the Bible. And it's not good. Any retirement that lives for self needs to be examined. Now, this is a challenge, and I I, I hope you don't rush the stage right now, but the American dream aside that you would work for 10 years for the government and then have all the money you want for the rest of your life just pouring in like clockwork so that you can do eat, drink, and be merry stuff with your, you and your soul and your soul mate, I guess, or whatever you want to do. I mean, really, that's, that's a dream that a lot of people have. That I mean, I'm going to get to a certain age as young as possible So that I don't have to work anymore and I can do what I want to do. Now, if that's your idea, you better read this over and over again. 
because your soul is going to be required of you. You don't. And how many of you know people? And this is anecdotal, of course. But how many of you know people? They retire. They're going to live a life of leisure, leisure and luxury. I put two words together there. Leisurey. <laughs> Trying to economize so we don't go over time. They're going to live a life of leisurey. I'm always thinking of you. And then they die like a couple of years into their retirement because their bodies are not, they can't handle it. It's like, what are you going to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. I got nothing to do. And their body just shuts down and all these diseases come on them because, you know, and, and so now that aside and, and getting serious for a moment, you should consider retiring in a way that makes you available to serve God. I mean, you go through your whole life, if you're not in full-time Christian service, wishing you could do more for God. And then you retire, and that would be the time to do more for God. And there's tons of people I could show you and talk about who have retired, young, old, doesn't matter, into a Christian service, taking the skills and talents and the ability and the wealth that God has allowed them to accumulate so that they could be available to serve Jesus Christ to serve the church of God. And what a blessing that would be. And so uh, if you're getting close to retirement, I apologize, but uh, this is what the Lord wants you to hear. Jesus made application of the parable to those who have any wealth in verse 21. He says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The brothers who disputed their inheritance ought to instead be striving to bring forth attitudes that better represented their love for and dependence upon God. Though one or both of them might miss out on a portion of their inheritance, they would be rich toward God first on earth and then later in eternity. Jesus was a thoughtful person. As he was finishing his response to these wealthy brothers, he started thinking about his wanting disciples. They had given up everything to follow him. But Jesus knew that giving up everything, giving up your wealth, does not automatically defeat the attitude of covetousness. This is a fallacy. People who think they're going to get rid of everything, live a kind of a monk-style life or in a monastery, this does nothing to defeat covetousness. If you have any want... Beware you are not preoccupied with possessions. That's the subject of the remaining verses. And you know what? It's easy to become preoccupied with possessions. If I just had a little more, I'd be better off and I could serve God better. Just a little more money, Lord. Just a little bigger house, Lord. Just another or a better vehicle. A bigger business. A better church, Lord. A bigger building for church. Whatever it is. If I just had more, oh, Lord... Look what I could do for you. Once again, I need to be careful because you need the Holy Spirit to speak to you in this area. What I can say is that Christianity is not communism or even communalism. Sometimes you could use a little more of all those things to the good of others and for the glory of God. Again, it becomes the attitude of your heart towards possessions and it must be submitted to God's plan for your life. Those who think of themselves as wanting rather than wealthy have to guard against becoming carnally preoccupied with possessions. And so Jesus said to his disciples in verse 22, Therefore I say to you, 
Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Worry is a key word in these verses. And then you're going to see the word anxious in verse 26 and later the word fear in verse 32. Worry, anxiety, fear. These are the words that dominate our modern society. We use other words like stress or depression or clinical depression to make it sound more reasonable so that we can heavily medicate ourselves to cope. But really, it's just age-old anxiety and worry and fear. Physically, these things are killers. Emotionally, they are cripplers. Spiritually, they consume us. The prescription is not a pill but promises. It's not therapy, it's trust. It is to return to a place of trusting God with our lives and then living according to His promises. We used to say in the early days of the Jesus movement, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you remember that, some of you? Some people say yes, even if you don't, so I feel good. Okay. We used to say that. It's biblical. God does love you, and He does have good works planned out for you to discover as you follow Him by faith. God's plan for your life is unique, something very special. It may involve abundance. You may abound. But it also may involve being abased. You might find that you have very little. It could fluctuate with many ups and downs. But God is with you all the way in plenty and in want. If we plug all of that back into what Jesus said in verses 21 and 20, or 22 and 23, you would agree that there is no need to worry about the basic necessities of life. If you're a child of God and God is in control of your life and God is a sovereign and all-powerful God that loves you, What is there to worry about? Now, listen, this might be the most important thing I say this morning. That does not mean you will always have even the basic necessities of life. Do you understand that? This is not a promise that you will have everything you always need and that you will have it in abundance and that you will never have a trial or a suffering or something like that. It is saying that whether you're abounding, whether you're abased, you don't need to worry about it. It's beyond the realm of worry. It shouldn't cause you any anxiety. You should not be afraid because God is in control of your life. I've told this story before, but I love it. One of my favorite Bible commentators, H.A. Harry Ironside, his A biography, a book you should all read, is called Ordained of the Lord by E. Schuler English. And in it he tells a story of a time when he was an itinerant traveling evangelist. And he literally had no money and no food and no place to stay. And he was, of course, praying about it. He was communicating with someone about it through uh, correspondence. And... uh, this friend of his, it might have been his father, but someone who was communicating, sent him back a letter. He says, God knows your need. And he knows that right now you need a starving. 
And you think, wait a minute, I didn't sign on for that. But you know, God knows your need. And sometimes you need to be abased. Other times you need to abound. I will say this about abounding. I've known more Christians who fell away from the Lord after they started to abound, after they got wealth, after they had plenty, than vice versa. There's a tendency when we're being abased, when we have very little, when we have great need, to cling so tightly to Jesus. And then as things begin to right themselves and we have an abundance, we're not as clingy, I guess you would say. Jesus is more at a distance. We believe he's blessing us so much because of our you know, greatness, I guess, and we begin to fall away from him. And so think about what Jesus is saying here. You don't have to worry is what he's saying. He's not saying he's going to always give you everything that you would desire. Jesus gave two illustrations with an application in between them. Verse 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Let's look at the ravens first. God cares for them. How much more will he care for you? I mean, this is meant to be comical. I mean, let's, let's face it. We always take these things so seriously. And Jesus is, and this is why some of the, uh, cartoons and, and kids movies are so funny when you, you know, you see, you know, the, the crows worried about where am I going to get my next meal, you know, because, you know, birds are just flying around. They're just living their life. They're kind of dumb, I guess. A little kind of bird brain. Get it? But, you know, they're just they find food and, and uh, they're not worried. Uh, you know, b- birds don't they're, they seem nervous because you want to kill them, but but they're not really worried. They're not worried about where their food's going to come from. And so we don't need to worry, but it's because God's care can be so quirky. And this is where we get tripped up in our thinking. You never think you need the trial, but God knows what it can accomplish and he will allow it for your good and his glory. And by the way, this is just an interesting thought. Ravens, scavenger birds, they often settle for leftovers. Some of us feel as though our whole life, We're always settling for leftovers. We're just never going to have the things that we would like to have or that other people have. Could be something emotional, could be something physical. It could be in any dimension. And, and, you know, you feel that way. So it's like, man, I'm always settling for leftovers. You try and get creative and you, you call it shabby chic now, but it's really just junk by another name. Uh, Do you understand what I mean? And this is that you begin to get preoccupied with possessions because you think, you know, I'm tired of having leftovers all the time. I deserve to and I want to and all that. And, and you know, the answer to that, if you feel that way, the, the compassionate answer to that is, so what? <laughs> so what? Because, you know what, this is not your whole life. So a person who says, oh, my whole life I've had to settle for leftovers. 
You mean these few fleeting years that are like a vapor and appear for a moment and then pass away as opposed to the eons and eons of time that can't be described ahead of you in eternity? You you mean that? That whole life? Yeah, I guess so. Leftovers now, rewards in heaven. Whatever God's doled out to you, whatever your lot in life is, God wants you to learn to be, to, to be content. Now look at the lilies. Beautifully, yet effortless. effortless. <laughs> 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 Clothed. God can provide you with whatever clothing He chooses. Now you could extend the idea of clothing to include all the externals that surround you. Your house, your business, your church. Again, you must put this in the context of the overall plan of God for your life. He knows what you really need in order to become the person that he is making you into. And ultimately, that's the person that you want to be. Now, in the middle of these illustrations, Jesus gave some outstanding counsel. First, he said, which of you by worrying can add a cubit to his stature? Under normal circumstances, there's nothing you can do about how tall you are. Your genetics determine things like stature. It's mapped out in your cells. In a similar way, God has mapped out your spiritual path. Rather than worry along the way, you're to walk with Him and enjoy every experience of His grace and mercy as you head home to heaven, whether you're abounding or whether you're abased. Now, second, Jesus said, if you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? The least seems to refer to adding a cubit to your height. You just can't do it by worrying about it. There's no use getting up in the morning if you're short and want to be taller or if you want to make the basketball team and just, what's the matter? I'm so worried about my height. People would think you're crazy. In fact, they'd, they'd give you an observation time up at Cedar Vista. Gene's worried about his height again. Okay. Hi, Mr. Pensiero. Put this white jacket on. I mean, it's silly. And again, it's meant to be funny. You can't do it. It's set. Being anxious about it makes no sense. And just so, God has in a sense, he, your life is set. Being anxious about your life makes no sense if you believe that God is a sovereign God and that he loves you. The remaining verses are a summary, really. They're addressed to those who have wealth and those who have want. They're for all of us, so we will learn to be content rather than covetous while on earth and on our way to eternity. Verse 29, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink or have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. All this talk about seeking and not seeking can be understood by a word we commonly use. It's the word priorities. Everyone sets priorities. Sometimes people say, well, I I don't really do that. I don't know what my priorities are. Just have somebody follow you around for a day or a week and jot down what you do, and they can easily tell you what your priorities are. They're what you pay attention to. They're what you spend your time doing. Those are your priorities. It doesn't matter what you think your priorities are. You know, a lot of people think, oh, my priority is my marriage. My priority is my family. Well, how much time, how much thinking really go into those things? You'd be surprised if you took a catalog of that. Whatever it is that you do the most, that's going to become your priority, and and sometimes it needs to be adjusted. And so 
your priorities are either going to be mostly physical and worldly, or they're going to be mostly spiritual. Even though you live in the world, your priorities can be spiritual. And that's what Jesus is saying. Make sure you have spiritual priorities. Now, Jesus compared us as believers to the nations or the people of the world. Their priorities are mostly secular and worldly. Watch the news and you can see that. And you can see why there's so much anxiety and worry and fear. Because the world that these people have as their priority is always falling apart. It's just one tick away from the next stock market crash or somebody's finger on the button or the next nation that's going to join the axis of evil or or the person around the corner from you who turned out to be an axe murderer or something. And, and, and if you watch the news too much, you, you, you start to get fearful and worried and anxious. And then you remember, oh yeah, that's how the world lives. But I don't have to worry about any of that. I don't have to fear that because I know Jesus. And this is, the, this is the thing. People should see in our lives a lack of worry, a lack of anxiety, and a lack of fear about these issues. So that they say, hey, how can you do this? How is it that you can be so content when the world around you is falling apart? You say, man, I, I don't have any answers except one, and that's Jesus Christ. Well, how does that help me? Uh, well, Gee, I don't know, except that you'll be saved for eternity and you won't go to hell and, you know, burn up for the rest of eternity. How's that? Well, yeah, but what about the stock market? Okay, yeah, that's serious, I know, but can we talk about hell again for a few minutes? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, you have to really have a perspective on what's really happening in people's lives. Why worry about stuff like that? You know, it, the saddest thing in the world to me is these people, you know, the typical stock market crash. 1929 or whenever it was, you know, and, and uh, was it in 29? <laughs> hey, it's no secret that I'm not the intellect I once was. Let me just say that. So it's, it's enough that I even know there was a stock market crash because I am a product of the public school system all the way through the university level. And man, I'll tell you, I don't know if I learned anything, but uh, anyway, so here's these guys. All they do is worry about their trading and their stock market and all of that. And then that all crashes, right? And then they think, well, I'll just kill myself then. Oh, man, what is wrong with you? Don't you know that there's a God and that there's a hell to avoid and a heaven to, to uh, you know, inherit by knowing Jesus Christ? I mean, that's the world. People jumping out of windows and blowing their brains out because the world is falling apart around them. You and I need to rise above that and not have these fears and worries, stresses and anxieties because we believe that God is a sovereign, all-powerful God, whether we have plenty or whether we have want. Now, I want to say a word about this phrase, all these things shall be added unto you. It absolutely does not and it cannot mean that God is going to add earthly wealth, health and prosperity to you if you seek him, it, it, I think you can see by now that this would be a complete destruction of the whole context of what Jesus is saying. And this is why we need to study the Bible carefully, verse by verse. Jesus cannot be saying, hey, whether in plenty or in want, trust me, don't worry about the world, blah, 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 this and that. And if you do, you're going to have all kinds of wealth coming in, money, secret wallets that have money pouring out of them. I mean, it's crazy, these things that these people get into. It, it, it offends me, and it offends God. And so that's not at all what this is about. 
These things refer to your spiritual growth. As you walk with Jesus on earth and he takes you through God's plan for your life, he adds spiritual depth and character to you along the way. Verse 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, it refers ultimately to Jesus' return to earth to establish a real kingdom on the earth. But while we're waiting for that, we can experience the kingdom in our spiritual lives by partaking of its many heavenly resources. In one place, in Romans 14, verse 17, Paul the Apostle says this, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's God's pleasure to give you those things. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Then verse 33, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Uh Uh-oh, are we blowing it? One commentator put it this way. Since they had a kingdom bequeathed them by their heavenly father... They should be so far from indulging an anxious care about food and clothing that when there was a call in providence for it, and rather than the poor should go without a supply, it became them to sell their houses and lands and whatever possessions they had to relieve them. And so the sense of what Jesus is saying is worked out in the book of Acts where you see a guy named Barnabas. And he's somewhat wealthy. He owns property. He sees that there's a need in the church. So he sells some of his property to provide for that need. Later on, the apostle Peter makes it clear that it was voluntary on his part, that there was no command to sell everything and live in a commune. It's strictly up to you. But it does put us on notice that if we already have plenty, then we should think about sharing with others rather than building bigger empires for ourselves. And again, I want to be very careful. I cannot tell you how much you need or how much God wants you to have. God can, and He will if you ask Him. But I can tell you that all of us need to be careful at any level that we live that we are not selfish and that we are continuing to share. Because He says in verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever it is you cherish and desire, you, whatever it is you concentrate upon and think about and focus your attention on, that is your treasure and that's where your heart will be. And you just need to make sure that that is Jesus and nothing else. Later in the New Testament, you learn that covetousness is idolatry. Interesting phrase. How is covetousness idolatry? Well, because the thing you covet is what you think about, what you desire, what you concentrate on, what you focus on. And if it's something that begins to obsess you, then it's not Jesus. And it's taken the place that Jesus should have in your life and therefore becomes an idol to you. It can be a person, can be a place, can be a possession, can be anything that occupies your mind and heart. And so we just want to make sure that our treasure and our affection is in heaven on Jesus on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible is its own best commentary. These words of the Apostle Paul are from his letter to the Philippians, and this is how he summarizes this same subject. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. In other words, Paul knew what it was to be wealthy, 
and he knew what it was to want. And he thought that that was all part of God's plan for his life. And then he says everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. And then he says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There are times of abounding when you need Christ to strengthen you, to keep you close to him when there's a pull to move away from him. There are times that you are abased. Maybe you're in one of them now, physically or emotionally or spiritually, where you need to cling to the Lord and see how you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. All of us have some wealth and all of us have some want. God has designed it that way so that we could recognize and guard against covetousness and thereby find true spiritual contentment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words of wisdom from the lips of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we want to take them to heart, and that means we have to go home and think about them. And I pray that we would. And that by your Holy Spirit who lives within us, by that teacher, Lord, that you've given us, by our comforter, by his still small voice that is tender and merciful and caring and kind, that we would look at our lives to see if we are those who have any wealth or any want. And really, we're all in, we're all both of those people. We, we do have some wealth and we do have some want. And we want to put all of that into perspective, into a biblical, heavenly perspective, so that we know how to live. And so that instead of worrying about comfort or the lack of comfort, we concentrate on being content, spiritually content, that we would be givers, that we would be generous, that no one would stand outside of our life and look at it as if we were a person building bigger barns to store wealth for ourselves so that we could have a life of ease and luxury. When there is a world around us, Lord, that is crying out for the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, we trust you to do these things in our heart. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. We're going to sing a final chorus to dismiss. And as we do, of course, you know there'll be guys down here, some of the leaders from our church who would love to pray for you and uh, love to just share their heart with you. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not even a Christian or you're doubting your salvation. Come forward and let them pray with you and for you and share the love of God for you through Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you Wednesday, unless the Lord comes for us, Wednesday night at 7, uh, and then this Saturday, the men's breakfast. God bless you.